This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Welcome to Katie's Crib, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. Information enables empowerment and enables people to set themselves up for success. Like we think about weddings, we often think and put a lot of focus on the weddings, but very little focus on the marriage itself. And so if you're pregnant, I would just say, like, start to think about the things that you need to help set you up for success postpartum. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Katie's Crib. As you know, from listening to this season, I was diagnosed with postpartum depression after about six weeks uh, having my daughter, Vera. And I would be lost. Not only with Dr. Stein, who we have an episode this season, who I, uh, Dr. Stein was my psychologist who diagnosed me with postpartum depression and helped so much. And alongside Dr. Stein, I had two moms that literally saved my life because they also struggled with postpartum depression. And they were my mom crew who I FaceTimed and sobbed on the daily regular when I was at my lowest lows. And without them, I honestly, at the bottom, I really don't know where I would be uh, at right now. I don't know. And they have so generously um, agreed to come on the crib to tell us about their postpartum personal experiences and also talk a lot about how they were able to be there for me, how they've so generously paid it forward by taking care of me. And now that I've sort of come on the other side of postpartum depression, I feel so lucky to have had them. And, and when I find women struggling, I, it's just, it's like part of this unwritten code that we are there for each other. So we have Talia Moore on the podcast today and Mary O'Malley. You guys know Talia Moore already because she's been on the Katie's crib. Um, she did an amazing episode on transitioning babies to solid foods because she's the founder of Tummy Time, which is an incredible company that sells healthy and organic baby and toddler food. I first met uh, Talia because she taught a birthing class, actually, uh, when I was pregnant with Albie. 
And she mentioned at that class that she herself had postpartum depression. And I remembered that and is why I reached out to her as soon as I was starting to go down. I was like, I got to call Talia. Talia and I also send our kids to the same preschool, as well as Mary O'Malley, who's the other guest I have on today. Mary O'Malley is a Pilates teacher and a therapist of the body and mind. She is a soul sister of mine. And a lot of times I would have Pilates sessions with her and she would talk to me about how hard it was, uh, her postpartum experience with her daughter, Cordelia. The minute I started going down the tubes, the two women that came to my mind were Mary and Talia. I FaceTimed them daily, sobbing, showed them sides of myself that I have never shown anyone. And I am so thankful that you two are coming on Katie's Crib today to help anyone who's listening. If we can even help one woman or one person listening who knows someone struggling with postpartum depression and give them the tools to better show up for their friends, that will bring me massive joy. So thank you, Talia and Mary, for coming on Katie's Crib and welcome. Postpartum depression. (laughs) Do a dance. No, guys, I'm not going to lie. I have done a lot of these podcasts and I'm rarely nervous for them. Let's start with Talia. How was your birth? How was your pregnancy? And how did postpartum depression come into your life? (laughs) Boy, The day that I found out that I was pregnant was the day that I found out my mum had cancer. So that set the tone for a pretty interesting time. My pregnancy, I had pretty bad nausea and vomiting. Um, I literally had a really glamorous pregnancy. I had pregnancy acne. I was vomiting morning through night up until nine and a half months. You mean you weren't dancing in a field in a beautiful empire wasted dress, like (laughs) smelling poppies and loving pregnancy? Yeah. That glowing piece (laughs) that people talk about skipped me. It did. (laughs) It skipped me. And then, you know, there was just this undertone of sadness about my mom. My whole family's in Australia. I have an amazing Australian husband who's here with me, but everybody else is there. My pregnancy for the most part was okay. It was a bit rough, but it was okay. My mum and my sister had both had postpartum depression and I am a birth doula and a childbirth educator, which is how we met. And Mm -hmm. I was well aware of postpartum depression being the number one risk factor for women postpartum because both my mum and my sister had it. I set up an appointment with a perinatal therapist who I still see. She's, she saved my life. Her name's Dr. Lisa Osborne. And I found her and I uh, went to an appointment, I think in my eighth month of pregnancy. And I saw her a few times. Funnily enough, she had asked me to bring my husband to one of the appointments. And my husband, Jono, had asked her, what will my role be postpartum? And she said to him, Talia's job is to swaddle the baby your job is to swaddle Talia. And that really helped postpartum because he understood he needed to be there for me in a big way. So anyway, I went into labor and the labor was long, but it was pretty positive. Um, It was about 40 hours. Holy shit. 
Yeah, it was long. Um, <laughs> I had decided to have a hospital birth. And as a birth doula, I was just like really eager to get out of there. I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. And in retrospect, I think I checked myself out too soon. The day after I had Miami, I went home and that began a really terrible two weeks. My dad had actually come for the birth. He was there a week before I had her and a week after because my mum couldn't come from Australia. And it was a time of, of true terror. Before I even talk about it, I do want to say to everybody listening, what I had was a very extreme mood disorder. And I think our intention here is to empower, to inform, to educate, to offer support and resources. This is not to frighten anybody. This is just my experience. And I think the importance of having this conversation is knowing that 15% of women go on to have a postpartum mood disorder. That's huge. And we have to be having these conversations because there's a lot that you can actually do to set yourself up for success. And I think because we don't have these hard conversations, because it's confronting, and let's face it, women who are pregnant don't really want to think about how hard it can be afterwards. But if we're not seeking support, particularly for those of us that are, have higher risk factors, then, you know, it's much harder to ask for help when you're desperate. For me, I had set myself up for as what I imagined to be the success. I had this amazing therapist, my dad, and I had hired a postpartum doula. So I checked myself out and we went home. My daughter was cluster feeding from the first night. So for those of you that don't know what cluster feeding is, it's when your baby is on, you, on your breast all the time trying to bring milk in. I just couldn't get a break. She just wouldn't. She was on me for hours just wanting to feed and I just couldn't, I didn't get a chance to sleep. By the time she was able to sleep, I was unable to sleep. I very quickly became overtired and anxious. I felt like I got like 20 minute opportunities and there was so much pressure even for me as a childbirth educator, having never had experienced a postpartum period before, I had said to women, you know, when your baby sleeps, you try and sleep, don't do housework, don't whatever. But the pressure that we put on parents, on mums to sleep when your baby sleeps, that pressure felt so intense to me. Like you need to sleep right now. It's like that thing where you're supposed to be up to catch a flight at 6am and yeah. you are counting back the hours and you're never going to sleep anyway. And now you're in an anxious tailspin about the sleep itself, which is mm -hmm. keeping you up. And it is a horrible cycle. Yeah. So very quickly after three or four days of no sleep, I began a very steep decline down into a bad place. I am a birth doula and I am all about doulas, but the woman that I hired was not quite right for me also. When my dad left and we still had this woman with us helping at night times, I remember sitting in the chair next to my bed with Mayani on my breast. She was just cluster feeding constantly on me. And I sat there on this chair just crying and crying. And I remember saying to this postpartum doula, can you cuddle me? I need to be held. She said, I, I, I won't cuddle you, but I'll, I'll sort of like rub your back. Like she, she just wasn't able oh to, we weren't on the same, 
she, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I needed yeah. more and I, I needed maybe more than she could offer. I think the other element of it is I have come to understand about myself that I find change a little tricky mm-hmm. uh, and there is no greater change for a woman to go from no child to child. Your life just looks instantaneously different. Nothing is the same, but everything is the same. I couldn't recognize myself. I couldn't recognize my life. And I was trying to find a way in my head to get out of the situation, which you cannot. Can I interrupt you? please. Once you got into this no sleep cycle and you're sobbing and you're not able to really get yourself out of it, your first call, was it to the therapist and to say, Mayday, something's wrong. What do I do? Or was it, was your husband like, this isn't looking good? So my therapist, I can't remember exactly when she started reaching out to me, but it was pretty quickly. It might have been like day three. Mm -hmm. And I think after that first check-in with her, she realized that I was not in a good way and she started checking in every day. And I want to say something that I think is so backwards. And that is that I had conversations also with my obstetrician at the time. I felt like he was so uncomfortable with my Mm. distress. He offered me no resources or no help. And I kid you not, had I not received the amazing support from my therapist who at two weeks, when I said to her, what does having a nervous breakdown look like? Because I think Mm. I'm having it right now. And at that time was starting to think like, I I really cannot live like this. Yep. I had that. I am certain that if on that day she had not said to me, Talia, I really would like you to go and see a psychiatrist today. I really wonder what would have happened if I had not gotten that appointment on that day. I called around to some people that she had recommended. And this one psychiatrist called me back pretty quickly. And she was like, it's going to be okay. I'm going to make time, meet you at my office in a couple of hours. My therapist said to me, what do you see when you see your child? And I said to her, I don't see her. The anxiety is too loud. And I think it's when that chatter and that anxiety is so loud in your mind that for me, I flipped into suffering. We always say this in childbirth education, any woman can cope with pain, but no woman should suffer. I know I said that to you, Katie, at the decision about about medication. We do not need to suffer. When I went to see the psychiatrist, she said to me, I'd like to put you on two medications. I'd like to put you on sertraline. I also want to give you lorazepam, which is, I think, a benzodiazepine for anxiety My reaction to her was, I studied natural medicine in Australia. I really do not want to take medication. What else can you give me? And she said to me, if you had an infection, if you had mastitis, would you take the antibiotics? And I said, of course. And she said, this is the same thing. You need help. You've tried other things. It's not working. You need help. And the braver thing to do is to accept the help. Dude, we all had that same reaction. We'll get to Mary's story too. Like you were like, no, I was like, oh, hell no. I'm getting a second opinion. This is bullshit. I don't need medication. 
And Mary, I think you'll tell your story, but you were like, give me six months before. (laughs) Like, which why this is such an important conversation. Why? Because, again, what you're bringing up, Talia, is that we should not be struggling like this. There's so many layers to this about being a woman and acting like we're supposed to know how to be moms from the jump. And we're supposed to go through this identity shift beautifully and perfectly and without complaint or without struggle or whatever it is that happens to you. And you sure as shit shouldn't ask for help. You sure as shit shouldn't tell someone that you don't like what's going on. It's so crazy, you guys, because I have a fucking podcast about this shit and I still (laughs) fell for every trap and was like, it's not me. Look over here. I'm fine. I'm fine. I've got this. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? And meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. I want to hear Mary's story. Mary, love of my life. (laughs) Tell me how your pregnancy was. Yeah. So I also just want to say what something that I'm just noticing and Holly is bringing up and you're bringing up Katie too, is that I think it's so important that we're talking about this in not only just to bring awareness of it to bring, but to bring normalization to it. Because I remember desperately searching at like two, three, four o'clock in the morning to find stories like mine that spoke to me because I didn't know anybody that was seemingly going through what I was going through. It It's so important that other people have a narrative to go to. 
So if I'm being really honest with myself about my journey, I think I actually had prenatal depression. So I live in Los Angeles with my husband and the rest of my family lives on the East Coast, my husband's family as well. So we're not as far as Australia, but we don't have anybody close by us. I just remember thinking my whole life that I wanted to have a baby. I'm the first of five children. I'm the oldest and I'm the only girl. So I kind of thought my whole life that I was going to have a lot of children. And my mother had always told the story of how she had five children with no help. She didn't need an epidural. She she went through it. And so I grew up with this idea that I was like born for this in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like I could do this. This is part of my DNA. Mm -hmm. I got pregnant and then very soon after started experiencing awful morning sickness. And I wasn't throwing up, but I had nausea just nonstop. And I was teaching Pilates and having to show up for classes, for private sessions. And I just felt like garbage. That light went off where I went, wow, women are walking around all over the world just doing this and nobody seems to care. (laughs) And that was this, right? And this is just what it is, right? Oh yeah, morning sickness. Oh, that's tough. And we, again, normalize all these things that sometimes shouldn't be normalized. And so I remember thinking, I felt so bad. When is the point going to come where I feel like the empowered, beautiful woman that I'm meant to be? It never came. (laughs) I, I, I felt, I just felt horrible for about five or six months. So, and my, by the way, my mother never had morning sickness. So I already am out of the gate feeling like this is, this is not going to be how it's going to go. Okay. On top of it, I was teaching meditation at the time. I had everybody telling me how great my pregnancy was going to be. Tali, I'm sure you had a similar experience, right? Mm-hmm. How great it was going to be, how lucky my baby was that that I was this kind of person who meditates and teaches Pilates and all this sort of stuff. And I immediately started feeling pressure to perform in a way, right? Like I had to look and be a certain way. And I had a really strong wiring like Talia did to be natural. You know, I had this experience with my own mother where she had done things naturally. And by the way, my mother never forced anything on me. This is just the story I grew up with, right? I knew this about her. This was how I wanted to do it. And I also had felt very much that I had a bend towards more holistic style way of being. And I felt I wanted to have no epidural and I was going to go to the hospital at the last minute and I had a birth plan and et cetera, et cetera. And I was noticing as my pregnancy continued that I was, I was really feeling more scared than excited. And I didn't know what I was afraid of, but I was afraid. At the same time, I'm trying to be the person that everyone says I'm supposed to be. And I'm trying to fill this role, right? Of this natural, holistic, whatever you want to, earth mother, whatever you want to call it. Then we get towards the end of my pregnancy and my blood pressure goes up. And I should also speak to, I want to speak to something that Talia said about the OB. I had an OB and I picked this OB because I was told she was like a midwife. And I thought, okay, that's what I want. From the minute I met her, 
we did not click. And I should have changed my OB. Oh, why do we do this? We <laughs> I'll, tell know. You, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because I wanted to be the good girl that did everything right. And I thought something was wrong with me that we didn't click because all these people were telling me how great she was. They were telling me how great my pregnancy was. They were telling me what a great mother I was going to be. And there was this disconnect and I kept trying to make it happen and it wasn't happening. I kept talking about how scared I was and my OB kept pushing it away and it's going to be fine. I went in the day I was due with really high blood pressure, which comes from my anxiety, which by the way, I have a very strong history with anxiety, have been medicated in the past, did not want to be, didn't even think about being medicated for this pregnancy because it was unnatural and Mm -hmm. I'd been fine for years and why did I need to? And I remember she threatened me and she said, if your blood pressure doesn't go down in four hours, I'm inducing you. And that was the beginning of this incredibly scary, I want to say tidal wave. So I remember lying, my mom had flown out from Florida. I remember lying in the dark on my left side, just crying and praying to anybody that would listen, please let my blood pressure go down. I don't want to be induced because I'd heard the Pitocin and the this and the C-section, all the things, right? And my blood pressure goes down and my doctor comes in and she says to me, you shouldn't have to lie in the dark on your left side for your blood pressure to go down. I want you to come in every day and you're going to get a urinalysis and you're going to get a stress test. And if anything looks bad, we're going to the hospital. So every day for a week, my husband would drive me to Cedars. I would be hysterical, hoping, this willing so myself. Stressful. It's crazy. Willing myself to de-stress so that I wouldn't have to go into this awful situation. And then a week, I'm about a week over, five days over my due date, my amniotic fluid was really low. And my doctor's like, we got to go. Hysterical. Like just, it, it just felt like the end of the world because I'd been so scared and feeling s- slowly getting out of control. I felt like everything had been, was out of control. So we go to the hospital. I get induced. I ask for the most subtle induction, which she kind of rolls her eyes at, but she does it anyway. I go on to be in labor. And one thing my doctor didn't tell me was that my child was OP. She was sunny side up. So I all of a sudden went from, I don't know, four to 10 centimeters in, in less than six hours. I was crawling on my hands and knees with back labor. And I didn't know that was happening. I didn't want an epidural, right? Because I wanted to be the person who didn't do any of the things. And finally, a doula who was at the hospital, who I believe is the head of Beanie Birth, came in to see me. She wasn't even my doula, Anna. Anna Paula? Yeah. Anna Paula's the shit. And she said to me, you can be in pain, but you don't have to suffer. And it just blew my mind. She said the same thing to me. She said, you are suffering. Get the epidural. I got the epidural, pushed for three and a half hours. My daughter arrived. I felt like a failure for getting the epidural. Felt like a failure for not doing it naturally. So then I, I go to nurse my daughter and it's really painful. By the way, had to breastfeed, right? 
and went to a, I forgot, went to a natural birthing class, never talked about cesareans, never talked about epidurals. It was just all, this is how it goes naturally. Your body's meant to do this. You're meant to do all this bullshit. So my daughter has a hard time nursing. I think it hurts. They're telling me it's fine. She is screaming in the middle of the night in the hospital. And I am like already going, I can't do this. Oh my God. I didn't even know what I was afraid of. This is it right here. We bring her home. The first night, she literally screamed for six hours straight. Six hours straight. So sorry. Did I use formula? No, I didn't because I didn't want to use formula. I wanted to nurse. And I'm trying to nurse her and it's hurting so badly. And I am thinking, what did I do? I have to escape. I've got to get out of here. My life has been turned upside down. My body is hurting me. My breast pain, nipple pain. You, oh my God, it's horrible. Yeah. So we finally find out a, a lactation consultant comes to the house. My daughter has a severe tongue tie. The reason she's screaming is because she's starving. She's losing weight. I had to pump and my husband had to feed her with a feeding tube on his fingertip. And then seven days later, he's in the film industry. He had to go out of town for four days. And I had to take her with my mom to get a laser tongue tie. Then we think we're good, but I'm pumping nonstop because she can't nurse yet. She's figuring out how to nurse. Fast forward to six weeks of pumping nonstop, going to craniosacral, taking her to a pediatric GI because she's throwing up after every meal, having to give her medication after every meal, can't put her down for half an hour after she eats. It was a nightmare. And my anxiety was actually showing up as rage. I was finding myself so short, so angry. I felt like I had been lied to. I felt the mythology of motherhood crushing me. I kept looking around going, how, why does anyone want to do this? This is awful. My life has been totally dismantled and I'm left in pain with a screaming child who I can't seem to feed. I can't seem to soothe. And everybody was telling me, that my anxiety and my stress was causing the problem. That was really the worst part. People go, if you just relaxed a little bit, and I would say, I think I'm pretty sure my daughter has colic. No, if you just relaxed a little bit and just took it easy, did more skin to skin. And I thought I'm doing everything I can. This is not, something isn't working. And I was in so much distress. I remember we were walking around the neighborhood one night. And I remember we had friends that were thinking about getting pregnant. And I said to my husband, I was so sad. And I, oh, said to him, I, no, I said to him, if they honestly asked me, oh. I would tell them they should never do it. And it was so heartbreaking for me because it was, I had this idea about myself my whole life that I was meant to do this thing. And now I'm doing the thing and it feels awful. It feels like I made a huge mistake. I can't get out of it. I can't escape it. I remember there was a one woman in my birthing house who was a therapist. I would te- we would text at all hours of the night. I just kept saying to her, I'm not doing okay. And I kept searching for to hear other stories. And I started to realize that my story was diverging. It, like one month, two months later, it was still a shit show, but people were kind of getting in a groove. I was just continuing down this path. Interesting. 
And I remember at about two and a half months, I remember it was like three o'clock in the morning. And I said to her, I really need to see somebody about this. I'm really unhappy and I'm not doing well. And I started to think about ways I could escape the situation, which would be to, for me, to remove myself from the situation. And again, I I don't say this to scare people. I say this to say that I had never had thoughts like this before. And I wouldn't even call it ideation. It's just this idea of, I got to get, I got to get out of this because it's always going to be like this. It's never going to be different. It's always going to feel like this. And this was a mistake. She sent me to a therapist. I called her that she called me right back. And I went and talked to her. And that was the first time I was about three months that she started talking to me about not only what postpartum depression and anxiety looks like, but unlike Talia, I didn't realize I had so many risk factors. I had so many, there's something called an ACE test. Did you take this, yeah. Katie? Have you heard of it? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The adverse childhood experiences, right? I, I, I'm not going to get into it, but there was some stuff that happened when I was younger that pretty much primed me to have this exact experience. And I didn't know it. And I was so hell bent on fulfilling what I thought was my role that I didn't want to see that this was what was going on. I felt like such, I just felt so much incredible shame. I was so ashamed. I kept seeing her for a couple months and it was helping, but it wasn't getting to where I needed it to be to function. And she finally said to me, I think you need to go and talk to a psychiatrist and I said the same thing as Talia. No, I'm going to take herbs. I'm going to do that. And she said to me, if you have a toothache and you need to get a tooth taken out, are you going to get Novocaine? I said, oh, yeah. She said, why would, okay. Like to deal yeah. with this problem, you can't even touch it until you get medicated. Because right now you are so far away from even being rational about this. You, you can't even see outside yourself. And so I went to see my most incredible psychiatrist, Dr. Meryl Sparego, who is I love how we're all like, thank God for our psychiatrist. Thank God <laughs> no, for our therapists. I, yes. Thank God. He's a godsend. And I remember sitting in his office and I just couldn't stop crying. Mm-hmm. And I remember him telling me, this is very treatable. You can do this. You're going to have to go on medication. And I think I was more open to it by that point. It was about six months in and I thought I've got to be done with it. Something has to shift. And he said two really important things to me, which was one, motherhood is the biggest loss you'll ever experience and the biggest gain you'll ever experience. Mm -hmm. But you can't see what you've gained until you acknowledge what you've lost. That was like, whoa, for me, that was so powerful for me because I was so caught up in missing my old life, wanting it to be different that I couldn't see all the, I had this incredible child here. I couldn't see it. All I could see was what I wasn't getting, what was lost. I couldn't own it because it was all wrapped up. And he also said to me, you need to get at least six hours of uninterrupted sleep a night. Part of what's going on, part of what medication is going to help you with was that your prefrontal cortex, which is the rational part of your brain, is not online at all. So no matter what meditation you do, yoga, breathing isn't going to do shit because your amygdala is just on fire and it is in survival mode. You've got to get out of survival mode. I was like, okay, we're talking science. I can get down with this. All right. Mary's super into science. (laughs) I love it. But that was big for me. That was the thing that I thought, 
I'm so desperate. I, I need help. And that changed, changed my life. It was hard for me to say that I was on medication. It took me a long time to tell people that I was on medication. And now I tell everyone. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And thank God you both told me because I was horrified. My villain that I had found for my anxiety, my depression was COVID. And I was having like three panic attacks a week. At about week six, I went to see my OB and I was still uncontrollably sobbing all the time for no reason. And she was like, you know, around week two or three, we can look at it. But at week six, seven, if you're still uncontrollably sobbing, I think I think we got to really pay attention to this. But when I went to my psychiatrist, I thought she was going to say, here's an Ativan. Put it under your tongue when you feel a panic attack coming on (laughs) and move on. You're the most stable person I've ever met. That's what I thought (laughs) she was going to say. You've never had trauma. You've lived a charmed life. You have two baby blessings. You've got this. You've got a mom podcast. And so here for the panic attacks for COVID, just take Ativan. When you feel a panic attack coming on, you'll be good. No. At the end of my two and a half hour consultation with my psychiatrist, who I had never met before, and guys, I've been in therapy for 12 years. I love my therapist. She was like, I think you should also talk to a psychiatrist. After I had a two and a half hour evaluation, she said, so you have very high (laughs) postpartum depression. And my recommendation for you is that you go on medication. And I was like, medication every day? And she was like, yeah, every day. And I was like, no, thanks so much for your two and a half hours. I'm going to go find somebody else. Like I was like, that is not me. I do not have a problem. Mm -hmm. And then I hit rock bottom. It disrupts your sense of self, right? Like, oh, it, it, oh my God. It, it feels like it shatters this illusion you have about who you are and what you're capable of. And that's a different identity. It's scary. Now, I have a million people I love in my life who've been on medication, who've been off medication, who've been on medication forever. And that's fine for them. But it would came to me. I was so upset. And then about a week later, not only was I uncontrollably sobbing all the time, and I had similar to you, Talia, like Vera on my breast, looking up at the ceiling, praying to anybody who would listen, praying to ancestors, praying to God to please change the way I'm feeling about my life right now. And I don't know why I'm feeling this way, but I can't stop crying and I can't stop having panic attacks and rubbing crystals and taking three hour long showers where I'm meditating, but nothing's fucking working. I am Mm -hmm. miserable. I don't recognize myself. A week later, after she said I needed medication, she had called the prescription into Walgreens. I refused to pick it up. (laughs) I woke up, it sat there and I was talking to Mm -hmm. both of you guys about whether or not to go on it and what to do. And that's not me. And then it started to move from myself onto my son. I had a few rough days Mm. with Albie. I started to think, oh, not only I was having suicidal thoughts, which I had never had in my whole life of I don't want to be here. If I have to wake Mm -hmm. up one more day feeling like Mm -hmm. this, I can't do it. I started to think Albie was being a dick who I love, (laughs) but he was really giving me a run for my money and not. Look, Albie, I love you so much when you listen to this when you're like 18 or maybe you won't ever. But I started to be like, what if he just fell in the pool? Or what if he just Mm -hmm. choked on this tomato I'm cutting up for him for dinner? Mm -hmm. 
I Mm -hmm. can't do this. I can't be your mother. And I ran into Adam and like Talia, when she said, what does it look like to have a psychotic break? I said to Adam, what happens if I need to be put into a mental institution because I am unfit to parent? Mm -hmm. I don't trust myself anymore. I don't trust the thoughts I'm having. I'm really scared because I'm not Mm -hmm. liking being a parent right now. I'm not liking myself right now. I've never felt this low and I've never felt this scared. And I think you're going to have to put me away and they're going to take my children away. And that's when I drove to Walgreens (laughs) and said, (laughs) I don't know how to help myself anymore. My OB, my lactation consultant, my psychiatrist and my therapist have all said, that they are worried and that they advise for me to take the medicine. And I don't know why I'm having such resistance and why I feel like such a failure. But now my children, what's on the line? I was cool with it when it was my own life on the line. But when it transferred to them and to my ability to parent is when I was like, this has gone on too long and it's too scary. And then I really needed you guys because I didn't call any of my best friends. I'm very lucky. I have incredible women in my life. And my best friends of 25 years, I couldn't call them. Like my best friend, Amy, had a baby three months ahead of me and she was having a glorious experience. Mm -hmm. I kept checking in with her like she was having crying stuff, whatever, but she wasn't where I was. And so diverged. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I couldn't call my mom, really. Like, I couldn't. I needed you to show me. And when you said, I know what you're going through, I know what's happening. I knew that you got it. And I could also look at you and say, they've made it. They have five-year-olds, like, (laughs) who are thriving. And you guys are okay. You're not just saying the mantra, which is all I was saying to myself was just one foot in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, one foot, because I couldn't even get up. Vera would cry to breastfeed. And I was like, I don't want to go in there because I knew she was going to sense that I was a fucking mess. Casey Wilson, who we've had on the podcast, who did the postpartum depression episode season one, I called her as well. And she talked me off such a ledge and sent me flowers that helped, which was so nice of her. Guys, again, the friendship and support that I got from you guys and from Casey as moms who had been through it before just said the light is coming. This is obviously still very close to my experience with the darkest depths of postpartum depression. But like, I don't I don't know. Like you guys said, I don't know what would happen. I don't know. I think part of the issue is that in our society, we don't parent in day-to-day in communities. We're so much on our Mm -hmm. own. We don't see the suffering. Every aspect of the experience from what different labors look like, what different postpartums look like. As I said Mm -hmm. to you, Katie, like you did not have a pregnancy and a postpartum period during normal times. The isolation that we feel in our society postpartum, particularly in the US, I love America, but goodness gracious, the postpartum support is absolutely appalling. And Mm -hmm. knowing that the number one risk factor postpartum is postpartum mood disorders, 
I think it's the number one reason for mater- um, postpartum maternal death is suicide. Why is there not more support? We text a friend or go on Facebook or that blog or whatever, but nobody's on there really having the conversation about what did you do to get through the day or where do I get support for not feeling a connection with my child? Like there's just so, there's so little support. I just hope every woman who has a baby knows someone, whether it's a really close friend or more of an acquaintance that they know has been truthful to them and has said, I struggled after so that they have someone because I knew that Talia and Mary, who I knew had struggled. And I was like, I'm struggling. I need to talk to a struggling mother like right now, like right now. This podcast is sponsored by Skylight Frame. Mother's Day is almost here. What are you getting her? Something that shows you care. Something that makes her feel loved. Something that won't stress you out. Something like the Skylight Frame. The Skylight Frame is the perfect gift. It's a touchscreen photo frame your whole family can upload photos to from wherever they are in the world. It's a way to share with her all the moments that matter. It sets up in seconds. You can even make sure that it's already loaded with photos when your mom opens her Mother's Day gift. And her Skylight Frame can hold thousands of the treasured photos you share. It's an easy, heartfelt way for mom to stay connected with those who matter most. It really is the perfect gift. Now, as a special Mother's Day offer for our listeners, Get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash easy. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash easy. Get 15% off your Mother's Day purchase now at skylightframe.com slash easy. Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of our favorite Netflix series, Bridgerton. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad, is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor, and meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. And I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd. Tell me about how your spouse has supported you. Mary. Um, so again, different than Talia, right? We, I didn't have this. I wish I had. I didn't have this sense going in that this is something that, that might occur. My husband was very supportive, but understandably really confused. Looking back on it now, I think he was probably terrified. I can imagine how scary it would be to, again, you're having this radical transformation, right? Your whole, again, in the snap of a finger, your entire lives have changed. And you sort of expect there to be ups and downs, but you don't expect this to happen where your partner becomes almost unknown to you. 
Evan was incredibly supportive in as much as he could say, yes, go do these appointments. Yes, do therapy. There was never a moment where he said, I don't think this is good or I can't be here. I can't have the baby when you're going. It was never that. But I think it was probably a pretty traumatic experience. And to be very honest, there were periods of time where, again, I told you a lot of my postpartum expressed itself as rage. You know, we've talked about it later, how hard it was for him to hold the space of just taking what I was giving, which was awful. And I had to work through a lot of the shame around feeling that way and recognizing that was a symptom of a disease or a symptom of an illness. But he was really incredible at just holding the space for me to be how I was and was not reactive, but responsive. Does that make sense? He was really aware that something wasn't going, wasn't right. And he was very calm. And he would often remind me of the good moments too, because all I could see was the bad moments. He would fill in the other side of the picture, but it isn't always like this. There's also some good stuff here that was hard. That was really hard for me to see in the beginning. But it was tough. I was not a joy to be around. I was not either. I the first bunch of weeks, I was so mean to Adam and my parents, like so frank, like mean. What about you, Talia? How was Jono? Was he like freak out? You know, Jono and I are so different. Like I, he is just super duper calm. So it is hard for him to understand mm. the spiral that I can go on with anxiety just mm. because he does not experience it himself. He's so lucky. I, I feel very lucky with Jono because we've been together 16, 17 years, a very long time. So we got to work through a lot of our shit early on and had come up with a really good way of communicating, which is very honest and upfront. That moment of saying, I'm not doing well and I'm asking for help, I was able to say that to him and he was responsive to that. And I think the validating of these vulnerable, overwhelming emotions is the first step towards getting help. So he was very, very sweet and kept telling me that everything was going to be okay. I would watch him with my Annie. He would pick my Annie up and he would look at her and I would see this absolute joy Mm. between the two of them. I have the same. And you didn't have that. No, I didn't have that. And I was looking at it and I was like, What What is this? I'm like, yeah, I just was like, what's wrong with me? You know, and I would see that. I actually realized that it was better for me to say to him, I need you to know right now I'm having a really tough time watching you two connect. I don't want you to change what you're doing. Do what you're doing. But I just need to tell you, I, I feel so sad that I don't feel what you're feeling right now. And like just saying it made it, it lessened the shame of it. He just kept telling me that it was going to be okay. And I believed him. And like you said, like I've said, I've quoted you on this podcast many times, not love at first sight for everyone. Yes. It's a slow burn. Yes. For some people, it's instantaneous love. It's like love at first sight when you see your baby. But for many women and men, it is a friendship that turns into a love affair. That was absolutely the case for me. I did Mine too. Feelings overwhelming love until my auntie was much older and now I'm totally obsessed with her but it took many months my parents were here when I 
had Vera and I was struggling. Obviously, I used joking around to cover shit. But my dad was like, I was like, oh, my God, I'm so fucked up. I kept saying this. He's like, but then don't you look at your daughter's face and it makes you feel so much better. And I deadpan looked at him and I said, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) And he was like, his face got scared. Like he was like, oh, shit. And I was like, yeah, it doesn't make me feel better. (laughs) Can I actually speak to that? Yes. So my mom did the same thing. And I recognized what she was doing was she was really scared. She's seeing her daughter basically disintegrate in front of her. And I've generally been someone my whole life who has gotten what I, when I and I want to say couch this, I don't want to say gotten what I wanted because I haven't gotten it ever, at all. But I, what I mean is I've been able to access the things that I want to do with my life and do them in a somewhat successful way. Now, my, my life has taken many turns. I don't live a perfect golden life by any shape of imagination, but I've generally been the kind of person that if I want something, I try to go out and get it. Right. And so I, my mom was seeing this somewhat very capable who she knew, right. As a capable person, just disintegrating, just falling apart, not being able to function. And her way, I think of trying her fear of seeing me that way was to say things like, but she's so healthy. And aren't you so happy that don't you love her so much? It'll all make it better. And what that actually did to me was make me feel worse. I felt so much shame because I couldn't get to the place that she was in love as her first grandchild. And then my husband, the same way, in love with her. And I kept thinking, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me that I can't feel this? And that shame just spiraled me more and more into isolation and feeling like I was just suffering alone and that that there was something so wrong. I was not, I can't do this. This is not right. I shouldn't feel like this. I should feel like that. And that's why I talk about the crushing mythology of motherhood. And I love yeah. what Talia is talking about. This idea that how do you love someone you've never met before? You don't, I, my, I'm obsessed with my daughter and she is constantly revealing herself to me, you know, <laughs> in this incredible way. Okay. So we all decided to go on medication for myself. Like I went on medication and my psychiatrist and therapist were also like, oh, just because you go on medication doesn't mean you drop all the other tools. I felt like I had to work my ass off to dig myself out of this place. So I started medication, which was very triggering and really hard just to take it every day and think about it. Like I felt such shame, even like putting it in my mouth and then breastfeeding on it. But I wanted to ask you guys, when you started to feel better, when you started to feel like yourself, because that was such an anchor for me was like, at some point, you're going to feel like yourself again. And I want to know what your advice would be in how you support someone with postpartum depression. Like, what did you find helpful for people around you to do? Let's start with how people can help someone struggling with postpartum depression, and then we'll come back around to what women can do who think they might have it or can prepare themselves or whatever. For me, it was pretty quick that I started feeling better. The day that I went to see the psychiatrist is the day that she told me to take lorazepam in the evening and I got my first night of sleep. 
boy, does getting some sleep make a big difference. I actually think that I'm still five years later dealing with some of the trauma and it has taken me this long to get to a point where I could even consider having another baby. I just, the trauma was too heightened for me to to imagine putting myself in this situation again. So it's been a slow process, but I will say this. I know that the quicker that women can get the support that they need, the quicker things turn around. Postpartum depression took many months for me to get to a point where I made the decision that I was okay to start weaning myself off of it. I think I was on the medication a year or a bit more. One day I was like, I actually think I'm ready to try without it. But for me, the postpartum anxiety was what needed to shift first so that I could function. So I guess my advice is all first-time mums should attend the class on surviving the postpartum period. Don't be afraid to ask and connect. In other parts of the world, there are very strict rituals around protecting a postpartum woman. Even to the extent of a woman's not allowed to like leave her bed for a few weeks, she just lies there in the community or the village, brings her food and takes care of the child and does her washing. Here, we're like making bloody cups of tea for visitors and out <laughs> snacks. You know what I mean? <laughs> I remember I've said that, oh, I don't even know. I'm going to out him right now. But I remember after I had Albie, like a week later, Tony Goldwyn was sitting on my couch for like three hours. And I remember having an outer body experience of being like, I think yeah. I'm out of my What's mind. Happening? I love Tony so much. He's having the greatest afternoon with my husband. I'm serving them beers. We're chilling. We're having a great time. I have no business sitting here for three mm-hmm. fucking hours when I have not slept. My boobs are leaking. I've never breastfed in public, let alone I'm doing this right now in front of Hollywood royalty. What am I doing? Anyway, keep going. That's just tangent. I just wish we could find a way to get mums during the postpartum period more support, even if it's, like I remember my, this one couple who've become very dear friends of us, they, were, they dropped food on our doorstep. Katie, this goes to why I insist on dropping food at <sighs> new mums' homes. I will never forget, I, I cannot fucking remember shit from that time and I remember the goddamn dish she made I remember that it was on my doorstep it was the first good meal that I had like one decision off my plate that I had good handmade food in my fridge so if you see a mama that looks like she is having a challenging time or even you're not sure offer the help before you're asked because women who are struggling with postpartum depression even asking for help things have to get real bad first also a lot of my friends at that time most of my friends didn't have kids so they figured I was like having I was in like baby bliss and that's why I wasn't responding to anybody so they just let me be which was the opposite of what I needed because I was so isolated so just yeah checking in food as you were saying Mary like normalizing tough times like it's not supposed to be it is just not easy 
we're balancing the recovery of our bodies, mm-hmm. the transition out our psych- psychological self is going through, plus the needs of this newborn who can do absolutely nothing for themselves. Um, it's such a tricky time. I love that. <sighs> I love it. Mary, I know. I know. I have to like take a seven hour nap after this conversation, but (laughs) Mary, when did you start to feel better? Similar to Talia, I could almost immediately feel the difference. And I think the feeling I would say that I had was not that everything is better and life is perfect now. It was more that I felt, and I said this before, but I felt like I could respond to situations and not react to them. I was able to have some more pauses when I felt strong things, strong emotions. I was able Mm. to sit with that for a second. It gave me some breathing room. I want to say maybe if I'm getting down to like the real logistics, in the first two weeks, I started to feel the hint of, wow, I might see why people have kids. I think I might start to feel... And I say that's funny, but it's actually, it took me that long to really start to understand that this could be good, that this wasn't something bad that was happening to me. And it, it sounds, it makes me feel really teary thinking about it. Cause if I think about my daughter and not like how her whole life has changed mine, it's, it breaks my heart that I was in that place for that long that there was something positive there too. But I would say within the first two months, I was really able to get into a groove where I wasn't having a panic attack every day. I felt more capable. I think the word I would say, and maybe Talia, did you feel like this? You felt a little more confident? Like you could face the day. Like that's how I felt. I felt like I could actually face the day and do it and not feel terrified about it. I think I felt terrified, I think, up until she was about one. I had so little confidence. I remember going to my, I signed up for a mummy and me group, which changed my life. And I'm, and that's mm-hmm. the other thing, people. Community. Community. Child rearing women have to be around other women going through the same stuff. Have to. You have to. You know, Daniel Stern says it's not a luxury, it's a necessity. I remember going to mummy and me group and sitting there for the first class and looking around at the women all mostly looking like they were wearing makeup and their hair was done and they were dressed Mm. nicely and I was thinking, what the fuck is wrong with me? I'm so frightened. And then as I got to know all the women who have all become very dear friends of mine, I'm like, oh, we were all a shit show. We just, it took us some time to be able to let Mm -hmm. each other in on the like who's having sex with their husband not me yeah not me not me not me (laughs) it's so good to have that bond and to create that bond with other women going through this intense Mm -hmm. transitional time I agree I don't mean to sound like I just gained confidence in two months it took me up until I would say around one as well and that was an interesting time period because my daughter started walking she became less of a baby and more of a toddler. And I also found in being in therapy and being on Zoloft, which is what I was on, really helped me to dig into the underpinnings of what was where this was coming from. Parenting for me has been the most incredible unraveling 
and mm-hmm. rebuilding of myself that I have ever, that it's like a mirror. It, it gives you the opportunity to see the good and the bad. Know where your resources are. Know where everything from your advocacy groups to who the who the local psychiatrist is to the specialty, the pre and postpartum specialist for a therapist. Having those resources so that you can share them with other women and sharing your story so that it becomes something that we do talk about, that we do just share. And it isn't this sort of, did you know, behind closed doors, what's happening with blah, blah, blah. As much as you're talking about dealing with mastitis or what diapers do you like? Okay, texting, checking in with friends who just had a baby. For me, whenever I send those texts, I try to be super supportive and I try not to ever be like, aren't you so blissed out right now? I always text like, hey, Just wanted to let you know I'm checking in and I'm sending you so much love. How are you doing? No pressure to rush to respond. I know it's probably wild over there thinking of you. Love you, Katie. I never try to put into my text how I think it should be going Mm -hmm. or that it should be happy or that it should be sad. I try to use neutral vocabulary, but that's just very loving and very supportive. Can I say one more thing, Katie? Yes, please. About texting people. I almost tend to never ask about the baby, which sometimes (laughs) I always ask about the mom. I remember somebody told me that the baby is the candy and the mom is the wrapper. And once you get the candy, you toss the wrapper and you just love the chocolate so much. And nobody remembers about the wrapper. And just knowing uh, that uh, having a mother know that you're asking about them. You're asking how they're doing. How are they feeling? And also saying, God, it's really hard. Do you hate your do you hate your partner right now? Do you not feel like yourself? Are you questioning everything you ever did? Like everybody gets so focused on the baby that we don't remember that there's a mom there. So I just wanted to say that. I love that. (laughs) Is there any advice you would give now to women who are either pregnant currently? Or women who've just had a baby? Many women go on to have much milder cases of postpartum or not even postpartum at all. So this is by no means to scare anybody. This is truly about informing because information enables empowerment and enables people mm-hmm. to set themselves up for success. Women Like we think about weddings, we often think and put a lot of focus on the weddings, but very little focus on the marriage itself. And so if you're pregnant, I would just say, like, start to think about the things that you need to help set you up for success postpartum. A lot of people don't have a ton of support, but there are resources. There are groups that you can attend for postpartum support. There are lactation groups that you can attend. Probably all of these are via Zoom right now. But there are places that you can go to set yourself up um, for some support. The practical things are having food, remembering how important sleep is and figuring out with your partner how you're going to work on sleep. Because if you don't sleep, you can't think. And when you can't think, things go haywire very quickly. (laughs) That on a more personal level is knowing not only that you aren't alone, but that you didn't do anything to cause this. You're not at fault. 
You didn't do something wrong. You aren't less than. It, having this experience doesn't mean that you are not meant mother or that you can't cut it or that you failed or there's some karmic relationship that did you did wrong and now it's coming back. This happens. It happens a lot and it's extremely treatable. You can work through it and you don't have to carry that feeling of suffering with you. Love that. Beautiful. And my advice would be, no, I was going to, th- I, I love both. I love that. And I also found it really helpful that I was really honest with people when I was in my darkest depth, people were mm-hmm. um, reaching out to me, you know, at week eight or nine being like, Hey, do you think, did you see that email? Yes. I was supposed to have a three month post you know, maternity leave, but people were already starting to trickle in some work questions. And I found it very easy. And this is what I would say to other women. I would I was really honest. I would shoot a text back and say, hey, I got hit with really bad postpartum depression. So I'm just struggling right now. I'll let you know when Mm -hmm. I'm feeling up to that. Or if a friend would check in, they would say like, hey, how are you doing? And I'd write back, actually, I'm not doing well at all. But thanks for checking in. Once it had sort of dawned on me that this was it. And this is my authentic experience of what was happening to me. I just found it really helpful to be honest with people because the only things I received back was love and support. I The judgment that I thought was coming mm-hmm. never did. And my friends were all really like, thanks for being honest. Oh, that's why you haven't been able to get back to me or take your time. Don't, re-, you know what I mean? Like it, it all mm-hmm. of a sudden opened it up and it has been really helpful. Mm-hmm. So I would say as honest and authentic you can be to be gentle with yourself would be my advice. So how I'm curious now that you guys are so far ahead of me in the postpartum depression experience, how, Talia, do you continue to heal now? It's been a process. And I think it has gotten just so much easier the older that Mayani has gotten because she's just so fun to be around. And now that I'm at a place where I can even imagine having a second child, I think what would be different for me is that I see that it's worth it. At the time, you just, you're like, what did I do? Uh, This was the worst decision that I ever made. But now I can see that it was the best decision that I ever made. So that's certainly helped with me healing from that experience is just seeing how good and how wonderful she is. Anybody listening who is having a tough time, I promise you that it gets good. It gets so Mm -hmm. good and you just got to ask for the help that you need and keep moving forward because on the other side, it's going to be so worth it because these kids are just glorious, (laughs) you know, even though they're also really challenging. And then I think a part of it is just understanding that I need to be a little kinder to myself and also who am I trying to put on a show for? Who am I trying to be okay for? Being authentic in my experience and coming into to this postpartum experience as a birth doula and as a somebody that studied natural medicine, this was absolutely not what I would have wanted for myself to go on medication. 
but it was the right thing for me to do because it would have affected my family and the fabric of our family in the future had I not received and asked for the help that I needed. Mary, what about you? How do you continue to heal yourself with compassion? So I'm an advocate for therapy, first and foremost. I think it's really important. And and I know that's a privilege to be able to say that and to do that, to have the, the space and the resources to do that. But it's been incredibly important and helpful for me to have somebody, to a professional that I can unpack all of the things that have come up because of this experience and continue to come up because of it. I do a lot of research and a lot of reading. I I have Google alerts set to particular topics and I'm that I'm really interested in regarding maternal mental health. So I keep as up to date as I can. As I mentioned before, I have done training in maternal mental health in order to respond to or to basically see women, if women are needing support and in doing that support helps me remember how hard it was and have compassion for myself because I see myself in all mm. these women and trying to have a practice of, com- of self-compassion. It's very difficult and I'm still working on it, but there is a whole sect of mindfulness meditation, which is something I practice that's around self-compassion and compassion for others. The last thing I would say is whenever I feel like I'm trying, I'm being really hard on myself or thinking about this experience, I think about how I would talk to my daughter about it and what I would say to her and how I would connect with her about that. It's helpful sometimes to put yourself in the position of a child and to see if you could be as loving to yourself as you can be to your child. I'm going to be able to have these conversations with her about what happened. And she's going to be able to see that her mom loved her so much that she took care of herself so that she could take care of her. I cannot thank you both enough for saving my life. Truly, I have not shown myself as dark as I was to anybody except my husband and to you two. So thank you with all my heart for being there for me. Thank you for coming on Katie's Crib and thank you for sharing your stories and your advice and your experiences. And I really hope we've helped people today. Thank you, Talia. Thank you, Katie. And thank you for letting us in. Thank you, Mary, for being on here. (laughs) You guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It means so much to me. What do you guys want to talk about upcoming? Huh? What do you guys want? What should we talk about? Who should we have on? You know, you can always reach me via email at katiescrib at shondaland.com. Katie's Crib is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
Summon your anticipation for an all-new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. This season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix, May 16th. Then, fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop starting May 2nd.